Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm joined by Terry Fakes for a Revelation Questions episode. Uh, we have been getting more and more good questions from listeners, from people that are there on Wednesday nights, from people who are texting questions in, and then through email, through our Instagram DMs. I mean, we're really seeing a lot of questions come in. We really are. In fact, I'd also have to say they're really good questions. I mean, some of them are just very small detail questions, and that's great, and try to get those in the lesson if I can. But we've got some questions that, you know, make you think a little bit, but also help. We can expand the explanation. So I really appreciate everyone that's sending in these questions. This kind of dialogue is a great way to enhance the learning. Well, and we've grouped some of the questions this week. So we're going to do four this week. We try and keep these pretty snappy but uh, we probably are looking at maybe seven or eight questions that we thought, oh, those are those three are really similar. Let's just knock all those out at the same time. And then mm-hmm. we have a bank of questions we're developing that we can ask as the series gets to that point. So some of these questions right. will be answered in the lessons, but it won't be until four weeks from now. And we've queued those up to be asked if they're not answered in the lessons uh, after the lessons are are taught. So if you have a question that you've sent in, we'll, we'll usually send back and tell you about when we think that's going to hit the lesson. Uh, if we're not going to answer it now, we'll definitely get to it in the future. Exactly. So kicking off this week, I always like for you to do a little bit of a summary. Uh, I think most of our listeners have, have listened to the lesson, but uh, not everybody has listened to the lesson. So this week, it's our fourth week of Revelation. What what was the main theme or the main storylines that you were picking up on this week? We moved from the initial vision of chapters, roughly chapters one through three, letters to the seven churches. Jesus, John sees Jesus. Jesus says, write to these churches. And in chapter four, you begin a second vision. You begin another vision. And we did chapters four and five. And this is before you actually get into some of the action in the tribulation. This is John sees a door in heaven and he sees into the throne room of God and he sees the throne of God. He sees the 24 elders around it. He sees the four living creatures. Uh, He sees a little scroll in the right hand of God, and he sees that the Lamb of God, Jesus, enters and is worthy to take the scroll. And you see this scene of great worship in heaven. So the two really big takeaways to me out of this is, number one, just the awesome majesty of the worship in heaven. And secondly, I wanted to pause and spend a little bit of time on this throne room vision because everything that happens from the rest of the book emanates from God's throne. All the judgments, all the trials, all the things that happen, they don't come from Caesar's throne. They don't come from man's uh, determination. They come from God's throne. So it's, to me, one of the most beautiful visions and uplifting visions for Christians. So chapters four and five are really probably my favorite. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful vision, as you said, but it's kind of the calm before the storm. And we got several questions about this ensuing storm. Uh, several of them dealing with the tribulation, which I know you'll get into further in the next few weeks. But our first question is an an interesting question on how the time adds up, how God's plan adds up. So it's it's good to answer now uh, before you get into the middle of 
chapter six. It says, how could Jesus leave his church, his bride here on earth while he pours out his wrath on the earth? And, And the distinction this person's making, this makes it a really interesting question. It might make sense that God would leave the church for other kind of suffering wrath of man against man, the implications of sin. But here, God is pouring out his own wrath on the earth. How does it make sense for the church to still be there in the tribulation? So this is kind of assuming a pre-trib rapture and saying, if not that, what sense would it make for the church to be there during the tribulation? Yeah, great question. Uh, I use this opportunity to talk about the rapture because chapters 4 through 19 basically are the tribulation and let's just take focus in on one of the four ways of looking at revelation called the futurist view and in that view chapters 4 through 19 all this trials and tribulations happen in a 7 year period in the future so this question is coming from that point of view and i said a lot there are differences of opinion amongst futurists But it's very popular to think that the believers will be raptured. They'll be taken up before the tribulation begins and that that event will happen right here in chapter four before we get into all the bad stuff. So that's one of the views, the futures views. It's called a pre-tribulation before the tribulation rapture, meaning taking the Christians off of the earth. There are other views that would say, no, there is no pre-tribulation rapture. The Christians are just there on the earth with everybody else. And when Jesus comes for his second coming, which the futurists think will be after that seven years, then they will meet Jesus and, and live eternally with him. So this question is saying, wait a minute, this person is implying a belief in the pre-tribulation rapture and is arguing, and it's a, it's a fair point, is doesn't it make sense that God would take the Christians off before he begins to judge the earth? And so I appreciate that question is it would be nice if he would do that. I would say, however, that uh, that is a point of view, but that's not usually the reason people believe that. It's not so much that they think that the Christians uh, deserve to be taken off. It's just they think God is going to remove it. Because one thing, even if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, you also realize there are going to be people who become Christians in that seven-year period, and they will be here for that. So my point is that as as an argument goes, it's probably not the best argument for a pre-tribulation rapture, because throughout all of history, and even through the tribulation, there will still be Christians here. But I understand that if you see, if you believe in the rapture before the tribulation, this would be yet another reason why you think that made sense. I would urge people to think a little differently, though, that if you believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, that's fine. But I think it would be there is some reason for the people who disagree with you to believe this. For example, why might God leave the Christians here? Well, I would argue that one of the reasons he might leave them here is they are life preservers to drowning people. In other words, perhaps God says, look, believers, I know this is going to be very hard, but there are still some people who can repent even during this seven years of tribulation. 
So I appreciate the question, but it seems to me that there may very well be reasons that God would leave the church here and that the people that don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, that's still a it's still a, a good picture of a loving God. He just loves sinners so much that he's going to give them every opportunity. So I think that's probably the way I'd frame the answer to that. Yeah, it's a, this question is coming from a really good impulse uh, about God's love, but I'm, the passage that came to my mind as I read this question was in Romans chapter one, where it says the wrath of God is poured out among all ungodliness. And certainly in Revelation, you have God's wrath maybe turned up a notch. It's a little more overt. Right. And uh, certainly this right. is at a higher level, but we shouldn't think about it as in there's no wrath of God now and there will be wrath of God then. There is wrath of God point. against <clears throat> sinfulness and ungodliness now. Uh, we don't see it quite the same way as when you have this bird's eye view in Revelation. And uh, then you think of the passages in Hebrews where it talks about discipline versus punishment. And then this brings you to the place that you're talking about. We're thinking uh, holistically about why do bad things happen. And God has many reasons, many of which you just mentioned, uh, for bad things yeah. to happen, difficult things to happen. And uh, our our role is to try and figure out... <laughs> what our responsibility is when bad things happen, which is to trust God right. to be faithful. Um, we don't always know why bad things are happening, but we do know what we should be doing in the midst of them. The second question is also a rapture question, but from the exact opposite perspective. So it's interesting. We get these questions. You just have so many different views. And of course, the way you teach Revelation, one of the great things about it is you're walking through these different views. And, and we'll give our views from time to time on this podcast. If you want to go back to our three-part Revelation series. We'll give a few views there, but one of the fun things is interacting with the different takes and saying, what would it be like if this were true? How would this passage work with that? Mm -hmm. how, how how might we learn from this uh, take on this? And I felt that way about this next question. Is Second Thessalonians 2 a rebuttal for a pre-tribulation rapture? Maybe explain this one a little bit before you answer it. Yes. So in First Thessalonians is where one of the descriptions of what people call a rapture, meaning Jesus comes down into the clouds, uh, the dead in Christ and the believers are taken up to him, and then he goes back to heaven, and he will return later for the second coming and judgment. That's essentially what believers in the rapture are believing. They believe in the second coming of Christ, but they think there's going to be this rapture event that's separate. And one of the reasons they believe is 1 Thessalonians. So this person is saying, wait a minute, I don't think that there's a separate rapture, meaning there's just one coming of Christ, not a rapture and then the second coming, and is pointing to the second letter of Thessalonians as evidence for that. So let me read that passage and explain why this person is saying, doesn't this passage indicate that there wouldn't be a rapture before the tribulation? So let me read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and Paul is explaining a little more to the Christians in the town of Thessalonica. And he's saying, look, you're really worried about the coming of Christ. You haven't missed it. And don't worry. There are people out there telling you that it's too late. You missed it. You're, it's hopeless. He said, no, no, not at all. And here's what he says. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, meaning the resurrection, we ask you not to be shaken in mind or alarmed, 
either by a spirit or a spoken word or somebody who wrote a letter and claimed it to be from us to the effect that the Lord's already come and you have missed out. He said, don't be misled by that. That's not true. He says in verse three, let no one deceive you in any way for the coming that day, the coming of Jesus will not happen until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, that son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every god or worship, takes his seat in the temple of God and proclaims himself to be God. So I'll stop there. So if you just read that, as he's reassuring them that you're not going to miss Jesus coming back. But what it means from the rapture point of view is this passage seems to indicate that Jesus will come back after the man of lawlessness, after, and this is typically identified with the Antichrist, who is a figure that's going to be there during the tribulation. So what this questioner is asking, and it's a good question, is wouldn't this indicate that Jesus will come back after the tribulation, not before? And my answer is yes and no. And here's here's what I mean by that, is the second coming of Christ to come to the earth, resurrection of the saints, judgment. If you believe in a millennium, then the millennium. We'll get to that later in the series. That is definitely happening at the end of the tribulation. But if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, you also believe he's coming at the end, like Second Thessalonians says, but you think he's coming also at the beginning for a special event called the rapture, just to take the Christians that are there away. Now, if you believe in that, you'd say, I'm comfortable with 2 Thessalonians 2, because I believe in the second coming at the end of the tribulation and the rapture at the beginning. This person is saying, well, that doesn't make sense to me. It seems like Jesus is only coming once, and that will be at the end of the tribulation. And you both mm-hmm. have a point. And this is the essence of the disagreement between fundamentally, is the rapture a separate event than the second coming? This questioner would say, no, I think they're the same thing. The person who asked the first question believes in the pre-tribulation rapture would say, no, I think you're mistaken about that. They're two different things. So Mm -hmm. these people both bring scriptures and reason to bear on either side of that question. Yeah, I would encourage people to go back and listen to our book overviews on first and second Thessalonians because we talk about this issue with the rapture and how this fits. Now, let me pause for a minute and say, what is the strongest evidence in the book of Revelation? If you don't bring in First and Second Thessalonians, uh, what is the strongest evidence in Revelation for a pre-trib rapture? Good question. In my view, others may see this a little differently, but if if I were going to advocate for a pre-tribulation rapture, uh, and again, this is within the futurist view, we weren't even talking about the other views, I would say that the strongest arguments that I have heard is that the, the church is mentioned in the first three chapters, the church is not mentioned in the rest of the book. Now, that's not exactly positive evidence, it's kind of negative evidence, mm-hmm. and most people that believe in the rapture before the tribulation, they'll say there's no church there. And in just a couple of chapters, you're going to see the marking of the 144,000 believers. 
And their point is, well, the church is gone and there are more than 144,000. So these are people who are Christians during the tribulation. So I don't personally find the arguments overwhelming, like you definitely must believe in a pre-trib rapture. But I would say those two are probably the stronger arguments on their side. What would you add to that, Cole? What What do you think, if you were going to look at it from that point of view, is the strongest evidence? Well, those, those are two good arguments for that position. I think there are some people who think in chapter 4, verse 1, when John is told, come up here and see what's about to happen, that that's some kind of indication that that's what the church will be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't find that to be a very persuasive argument, but that's the only clean break in the text before you get to the opening of the scroll that uh, something right. might happen. It's it's just interesting to me that how how differently you can see some of this. I was looking at Lightheart's commentary, which I know you've mentioned in the series. Right. He is a partial preterist, almost a full preterist, being that he thinks almost everything in Revelation has happened uh, before 70 AD and then think and and then holds a position where there's a lot of this being fulfilled throughout history into a big culmination uh-huh. at the end of the ages. <laughs> he says a little bit tongue in cheek, there is evidence for a pre-trib rapture, but it happened in the mid 60s of the first century and it was a rapture by martyrdom. And uh, that brings a whole different <laughs> well, angle different into perspective. how you yes, might interpret does. these early chapters of Revelation. So I just want everybody to keep you know in mind that there's there's a lot here textually and so there's that's why there's so many different views uh our third one is is a little bit different question but interesting what about people who have near-death experiences and come back to talk about them essentially i think asking what should we make of these experiences is this what happened to john is their experience supposed to be on par with what john tells us should we put any stock into that what do you think that's a great question. Uh, one of the things I want to emphasize, for which I talked about in our lesson, is in chapter one, where John has the vision of seeing Jesus, he doesn't claim, I went to heaven and saw him. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, meaning the spirit showed me these things. This is what we would call a vi- He had a vision. He's not saying, oh, I went there and I looked around. And then in chapter four, he also says this, the spirit showed me these things. So I just want to be clear. John is not saying he went to heaven. He's saying the spirit is showing him what's going on in heaven. Whereas these near-death experiences, people say, no, I actually went there. My body was dead for a period of time. My soul went to heaven and I came back to my body. I, first of all, I would say that's not what John is claiming here. That's not what he says is happening. So there's a difference. Second thing, I believe, and I think most of our listeners probably do too, that that the book that John is writing is indeed an inspired revelation from God. I would not make that claim about near-death experiences. In other words, I, I, maybe this happened, maybe this didn't happen. I have an opinion, but whatever happened, it's not on the par with this revelation of God to John. And I don't know that people are even claiming like, hey, you need to write up my story and put it in the Bible. So they're not even claiming that. So it's not on the same level. 
So I would say that those stories might be in. I'll put the the best face on it for me. Those stories might be encouraging to the extent that they affirm what the Bible says. To the extent that they don't agree with the Bible, I would doubt them because I believe God has revealed what he wishes to reveal about heaven. So I'm not trying to be unkind and saying these people are all confused or wrong or deluded. I'm simply saying anything that they say that disagrees with this, disagrees with God's revelation, I think uh, I would reject that. Right. Uh, Moving on to our fourth question. How do we know John actually had these visions? Were there other witnesses? Are they explainable through his familiarity with the visions of Ezekiel and Isaiah? Maybe he's writing something that's reminiscent of these things. What what kind of validation or proof do we have that what John wrote is actually what God showed him versus what maybe he came up with? That, that is a good question, and I really am not sure exactly where this questioner is coming from. And what I mean by that is I don't want to spend a lot of time answering something and you go, well, no, that's not where I'm coming from. So I'll give you a couple of options of where you might be coming from. So first of all, do we know that John actually had these visions and were there witnesses? Well, there were certainly witnesses and people with him at the time when he had them. And later, they did not see these things. They did not have the visions. So technically, did anybody else see what he saw? Well, no, of course not. And in fact, he says, no, it's it's given to John. Were there witnesses and people said, John clearly saw this and he told us what he saw and we he told God said to write it down and he did. And the early church believed that. The book of Revelation is in your Bible because it kind of went through that process of it came from an apostle. It's consistent with the rest of the Bible and believe that it is inspired by God. So the short answer to that is that the church believes that to be true, that do not believe that John is lying or that John is making this up. As to the second question, there are a lot of ways you could be asking this too. The visions, uh, some of the touch points are not the same as Ezekiel and Isaiah, but they are informed by it, if you want to think about it. So you can come at this from two ways. One would be a a more liberal, not an orthodox Christian way, and that is that John, you know, he thinks he had a vision, or maybe he just made this stuff up, and he had read Ezekiel, of course, and Isaiah, and he just sort of made up this story in the same vein. Well, I'm probably not going to spend much time on that because it presupposes that John has made it up, and and I don't find the evidence for that even remotely compelling. But maybe a better question, if this person is asking from a more orthodox Christian point of view, is why are there similarities there? I think there are really good reasons for that. So, for example, Cole, you and I talk a lot. We've seen a lot of the same movies. Let me just use a movie example. And we both like uh, Tolkien, and we've both seen Lord of the Ring, and we've read the books. And there are times when you want to you want to explain something to me, and you know that I've seen that movie, or you know I've read that book, and you will use an example out of that book, and you'll say, Dad, it's like this. It's like when Aragorn you know, fought in this battle. I go, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about, because I've read that book you have now communicated that very effectively to me. 
That's what God is doing, not just John. This is what God is doing. Those stories in the Old Testament, it's not just the Jews that knew those stories. Everybody knows those stories. That's why the Jews were at the center of history for all that time. And so God is using those visions and those events that happened to the Jews to explain these brand new concepts but to explain them using concepts that you already know. And so it makes perfect sense that 270 of the verses in the book of Revelation refer back in some way or another to the Old Testament. It's God explaining things to you and me saying, okay, now you know this story, right? Okay, well, now I want to explain something that by using that story, I don't want to go beyond that. So I do think that there are reasons why God uses those things in the Old Testament. I would even go so far as to say that's part of the reason those things in the Old Testament happened was so that God could then use those ideas to explain what is Jesus really up to. What do you think, Cole? I wonder if there's another angle for this question that might be differentiating what John is seeing and writing from other religions or offshoots. So for example, uh-huh. we know the Muslim religion is based on Muhammad having certain visions and encounters, having his night uh, vision and his journey that he goes on. In the same right. way, the Mormons uh, would claim to be an offshoot of Christianity with a later revelation that is also vision-based, Joseph Smith seeing uh, or receiving vision from the angel Moroni, looking into a hat or under a cloak and receiving information that he's then supposed to write down. Maybe part of this question would be that comparative piece of, we don't, as Christians, believe that those other visions are true. They may have had those visions. They may have had something going on. We don't believe that those are true, What's different about John? Yeah, great question. Uh, Well, there are a lot of reasons for that. First, historically, this is coming from one of the apostles. One of the, this John literally, this isn't, you know, somebody 200 years later has a vision about Revelation. This is one of the companions of Jesus who comes and says, I saw Jesus when he was in the flesh. And he came to me in a vision and said, write these things. This is the final piece for my church. Make to me, as just a just analytically speaking, makes a world of difference. That it's not, you know, Terry Fakes, you know, 100 years later says, Well, guess what? I've got a new vision for you. So I think the authenticity of this is is much stronger because it's coming from John. The fact that it's coming early, the fact that the early church believed it. I mean, it's one thing for me 2,000 years later to say, it's hard for me to know if John was a charlatan. You know, maybe he really wasn't a faithful apostle despite all the evidence, but it would have been really hard to fool all those people that he taught after this that were right there with him. So I would say that for most of us, the evidence is overwhelming that this is true. Let me put it this way. We believe an awful lot of stuff with a lot less evidence than this. So mm-hmm. the fact that it's John and the fact that those who are co-contemporary with him believe this uh, to be true uh, is, is one of the compelling reasons for me. As opposed to Muhammad 
600 years after Christ and Joseph Smith, 1800 years after Christ. Yeah, as I say, we certainly see some discrepancies between uh, these kinds of accounts. And I think the, the deeper you go into some of these later, quote unquote, revelations, the, the more differences you'll see with the way they line up with Scripture, the way that God reveals himself. We are enjoying getting these questions, and I, I love that we get to expand the lessons into these topics. So continue to send in your questions through email, info at soespeak.com. You can message us on Instagram or Facebook. You can text in your questions if you're listening live on Wednesdays, and we'll do our best to continue answering these on Fridays here at the So We Speak podcast. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.